Good morning, Ned. Ciao, Davide. Where are you? I'm a few kilometres from Cortina in the Dolomites, where the Pink Panther was filmed in the early 1960s. Light to moderate traffic is expected to build throughout the day, as a procession of Range Rover drivers with pastel-coloured cashmere draped across their shoulders encounter marginal delays to their busy lives, fleecing pension funds and shorting businesses across the world. However, the peak of the congestion is not expected until the winter of 2026, when Cortina hosts a Winter Olympics, with people sliding around on snow and stuff. It's 6.29, and here's Billy Bragg with a New England. Stray's Farfale Giro d'Italia morning show special podcast is brought to you by Chapter 3 and The Roadbook. That's a really catchy name, isn't it? The Never Strays Farfalle Giro d'Italia Morning Show Special Podcast. Anyway, Chapter 3 was created by you, David Miller, in 2015 with the vision of creating cycling clothing that you would wear as a retired racer. Now for 2021, Chapter 3 have made cycling kit to meet you wherever your ride takes you. They're calling it Most Days. It launches in only a couple of weeks' time, so make sure you sign up via the link in the show notes to get access before anyone else does. In 2018, Ned and a team of dedicated enthusiasts delivered the inaugural edition of the Roadbook Cycling Almanac, an annual publication supplying day, essays and anecdotes from the racing calendar. The Roadbook 2020 and past editions have become the definitive companion of any fan of the sport. To be the first to hear about limited pre-order runs for future products and exclusive promotions, sign up by the link in the show notes. The Giro can wait. Any dreams, Ned? Yes. Oh, what? Really? Well, I went to bed last night thinking, am I going to dream? Because right. how often do you have dreams? Well, I mean, every, every, everyone dreams every night, mm. don't they? Yeah. But, but it's not often that you wake up and remember them. No, it's not. It's, it's true. Because they tend to, it's like REM sleep, isn't it? So you kind of dream, then fall back asleep, you get into light sleep and forget about it. But if you get it just at the right moment, like you are, because you're having this constant early wake up, you're waking up and you're not going back to sleep. So it's straight Boom. out of straight out of REM into life. Boom. So that's exactly right. So the alarm's waking me up every morning, and every morning, that's four mornings in a row, it's interrupted. It's a live transmission of a dream. It's kind of um and because I know that this is important therapy for me and that we're engaged in a process here, I make a I make a real effort instantly to, to kind of recall it, or at least as much of it as I can hold on to it so that I can recount it to that's, you. That's very useful, right. Ned. Well done. This is a little bit fragmented, and it's quite short. Okay. You'll be glad to hear. <laughs> but but I was, the dream was this this morning, David. I was commentating on a stage of the Tour de France. No, the, uh, the Giro. The Giro. And... um there were repeated crashes and they were nasty kind of high speed little affairs, which actually relates quite, uh, quite closely to what we saw yesterday in the, in the actual race. And not only that, so it was quite interrupted the coverage constantly because the camera was going back to see riders on the deck, but also I was distracted by an information screen that was displaying the latest standings. This is absolutely true. I swear to God in the fighting spirit competition that we were discussing yesterday with, that Dries de Bont is reading, mm. it was, is leading. But 
the information was suggesting that AG2R's Clément Champoussin was actually leading that competition on two points. A couple of things were baffling about that. One, why two points? Like, I mean, Dries de Bond has got about 46 or something, which made me think, I don't understand everything that I explained to you yesterday. I don't understand. Mm. You know, I've clearly got the scoring system wrong. And two, Clément Champoussin abandoned the Giro about a week ago. Oh dear. Right. So this really, this was really baffling me and distracting me. And then another crash went down. And this time I picked out Gino Meda, who'd already crashed in the dream and clearly broken his or fractured his right wrist. And he, I saw in this crash that he'd gone down again on his right wrist. And you could hear the kind of screams of pain. At this point in my ear, and you'll be, you're aware of this because you know what you know. Mm-hmm. The director's voice sounds like in your ear. Um, I was I was urged by our producer to bring in expert commentary from my co-commentator, right? Who turned out not to be you, mm-hmm. but instead, in a really surprising plot twist, my co-commentator turned out to be my goddaughter. Oh dear. Um, my my goddaughter has a in in real life, not in the dream world had a brief association with the Tour de France and ITV's coverage in 2007 when she was in her early 20s, I guess. Um, I think she just finished university. And I got her a job making tea and working as a runner on the production. Okay. But that's 14 years ago. And subsequently, she's got a family. And just uh, uh, quite recently, she had, she, um, had a second child. So as we're just testing the line and before we're on air, I said, hello there, how's it going? How's the, how's the little one? And she said, yeah. And then she sounded quite terse and impatient. She went, yeah, yeah, fine. Mm. And I said, can you send some more pictures through onto the family WhatsApp? And she goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then she said, but let's do this sound test first and started counting, you know, Mm. five, four, three, like that, as if she was like, in control of the whole broadcast and actually just wanted to talk about uh, the race that was in progress and left me feeling rather foolish and inadequate because I was just talking about sort of family and fluffy stuff. And then the alarm went off and I woke up and now I'm talking to you. Okay, Ned. This one uh, perhaps is a little bit easier than most, maybe. Than, than yesterday's I, fear partic- might, I fear it might be. Than yesterday's, perhaps, especially. Um, I think it's, it's clear. Did you feel, did you wake up panicked? Um, were you in a state of panic? No, I wouldn't say panic, but I was, more than the other dreams, I was really unsettled. Unsettled. Okay. Well, it, it seems that you're in a familiar situation in the sense you're there every day. It's strange. It's the first time you've dreamt about the commentary box. I, I wonder what's causing that. I mean, I think yesterday was a strange day with multiple crashes at the beginning, um, which I think did put everybody off slightly. But I think the fact that you were dealing with that, which we know as a, I know as a commentator is a stressful situation because you're trying to stay up to date in the race. Then you've got the screen that is, uh, that is showing the wrong information. Um, although you don't know that because the screen's supposed to be right and that's what you're supposed to convey. So yep. there's a, that's a double whammy. So what do you do in that situation? You will lean on the, the color talent next to you. Exactly. That's your, uh, your reliance, your, your pause in the storm 
is that that expert next to you. Uh, I am commonly in that seat. Um, I'm sorry I wasn't there yep. in the dream led to help you. So the, your, your daughter being, your goddaughter being there obviously is a worst case scenario because all of a sudden you're on your own. <laughs> you're very much on your own. <laughs> much of this dream, it's almost your own way of having a falling dream which often reflect feelings of inadequacy or a sense that your life is out of control. Uh, this is uh, dealing with your stresses. It, what's stressing you at the moment is probably something you should think about. I mean, is this is the race itself stressing you, Ned? Is it just getting into third week syndrome? Partly, but it may also be that being told every morning, quite early in the morning, that I'm suffering from imposter syndrome. Well, I was going to conclude that this, once again, feels <laughs> much like imposter under- syndrome. <laughs> because it feels like... I'm my confidence. <laughs> so you're saying that therapy is becoming counter-reactive, counter-productive. I think it's an it's area that we need to explore a little bit, David. Maybe. But it is... Um, but we'll leave it there for today and just we'll consider it a falling dream rather than an imposter yeah. regards imposter syndrome. It's just you feeling it inadequate rather okay. than like an imposter. Does that help? It, it, do, it does. But I mean, I, I like to think of this therapy as a, in a way a two-way process. So it's a dialogue. Mm-hmm. And perhaps, I don't know, perhaps you could... <laughs> Uh, you could the, your takeaway from today could be the messaging that you're sending me on a daily basis, from <laughs> whether or not. Uh, <laughs> whether or not. <laughs> okay, well, why did um, I'm just doing with what I, what I, just working with what I get here, Ned? And the, <laughs> that's also true. <laughs> the point is, I have to be honest, uh, otherwise this doesn't work. And you have to be honest with yourself. This is your subconscious knocking, uh, knocking on your conscious, trying to tell you something. You need to, let's start looking maybe into um, ways to fix the imposter syndrome and these feelings of inadequacy. Um, okay. Perhaps it's time for us already so quickly into therapy to start looking at a, a, a positive actions to be taken going forward. Okay, well, I'll tell you what, let's talk about the race. There you go, let's do that. You watched it yesterday, didn't you? Uh, I did, did actually. Um, well, you know what was amazing? It was kind of Sunday, so it's a bit of a chill out day. So I managed to persuade the whole family to sit down and start watching the bike race at the start. Cause I thought, you know, I'm going to turn it on and I'm going to have a snooze because I'm absolutely exhausted in classic bike racing viewing style when you don't have to commentate Perfect. it. Turned it on uh, and it was the start, but it wasn't the start. And the fact oh, all three kids were there. Nicole was there and we sat there for 10, 15 minutes just wondering what on earth was going on because we must have got it just after they'd stopped it. And it was not very clear. I mean, even on Spanish commentary, which I could understand, it didn't seem very clear to them what was going on, how long it was going to last, what had happened. And um, and it didn't become clear for quite a while. And even then, well, by the, that point, I fell asleep. But um, the last <laughs> thing I saw was the brake going and it would look like an echelon. And I was like, oh, I'm going to sleep. This is not good. Um, but yeah. yeah. So what did happen? Well, they, they, um, their stage start yesterday from Grado was uh, uh, literally out into the kind of the lagoon just up the coast from Venice. Yeah. And as a result, the, the road where the flag dropped was a f- absolutely arrow straight causeway, which is probably what you saw on the, on the screen when you, when you tuned in. And, um, 
just by chance, there was a completely perfectly aligned, very, very strong tailwind. And as the flag dropped, a pre-planned move went, and you, you could see them all sort of hovering around during a very short neutralised rollout. Victor Campenat and the massive German Max Walscheid from Quebec Assos had clearly decided in the bus, what we're going to do is a two-up attack, and we're going to go, and we're going to rip it. And they're vo- very, very powerful riders, both of them. Flag drops, that's exactly what happened. The two of them went, and that instantly provoked a kind of hellishly fast response from a lot of, a load of riders because it was a real possibility um, that the breakaway would go on the on the day today. So it's a big battle, and it, but it didn't last long because the stress that was transmitted instantly down the line into the peloton as they hit that causeway as well resulted in. I mean, you know, I, I, you'd have to go go and look at the sort of data off their their bike computers, but I mean that the speed must have been. What do you think, David? On on the flat in a very strong tailwind, you're going to be uh, you're, you're going to be touching goes, sixty kilometers an hour, right? Pro, yeah, beyond that, I mean, yeah, actually, in those conditions, when riders are that strong, the only thing that's kind of stops you going below above seventy consistently is you you run out of gears. So I imagine they're in the low sixties, mid sixties most of the time if it was flat and a tailwind, and at that point in the race, which is terrifying, isn't it? And in that, I mean, I think that there appears to be a clear difference, doesn't there, between the violence of a crash at say normal racing mm-hmm. speed, you know, the kind of like high thirties, low forties and that. So, <clears throat> excuse me, even though the cameras missed the moment, thank God. So I don't think there's any footage of the crash itself. All we saw was the immediate aftermath cut to the back. Jos van Emden is on the deck and he's in bits. Um, Natnail Bahani's smacked up against the, the side of the road. Emmanuel Buchmann already is being treated by a doctor. He's standing up, but he looks dazed. He looks all over the place. Ruben Guerrero, helmet off, staggering around. You know, it's like, it, it was re- it was really quite serious. And self-evidently, um, very quickly, the information was being, actually, I take my hat off to the organisation of the race yesterday. All that information at the back of the race and in the convoy was transmitted straight away to Stefano uh, uh, Aliocchi, who's the race director, and he took a very, very quick decision within seconds, almost less than a minute, I think, that they had they would run out of medical support. That the the number of serious accidents and in, injuries there were in that ballpark where even if they allowed the race to carry on, the race would be carrying on without an ambulance or without any doctor's cars because everyone was yeah. tied up at the back. <clears throat> and I think he just went, "Nope, we stop, and this gets sorted." <laughs> so it's a twenty. It, it, it caused four abandons instantly. Wow. Jos van Emden, Emmanuel Buchmann, and Natnel Bahani, and then subsequently Ruben Guerrero. Um, <coughs> but it was, I think it's the first time I've seen that, David, since that day on the Tour de France. Yeah, was uh, that where stage three in... Christian Prudhomme. Yeah. What was that, 2011 or 10? can't remember. Oh, it's 2012. It was a year. Yeah, I remember. Because it, it, was, it was thanks to that crash. I still got a big scar on my arm. Can you see, you see it? Okay. And now it's like, it's, it looks like kind of these, like I've been scratched by a tiger where a chain ring went right through my arm. It was, that was the oh. most terrifying. That was a crash probably very similar to this where I think when the first rider went down, he was clocking 68 kilometers an hour at the front of the bunch. And it's a very tightly packed peloton with 25 Ks to go. And we're on a narrow stretch and it happened in like in the top 10. And 
because it was slightly downhill with a tailwind, as I said, 68, 69 kilometers an hour when the first rider went down. And then it was just like a tsunami of bikes and people just came <laughs> ripping back through the peloton and took, I don't know, 50, 60 guys down. And again, took numerous riders instantly out. And it is the most terrifying crash you encounter as a professional cyclist, those ones, because you hear it before you see it. And so you're kind of racing because it's very hard to see. I was lucky because I'm one of the taller riders, so I can see, but a lot of riders don't get to see much of what's ahead. So when you hear that kind of, and it's a cacophony of sound, and you don't never hear people screaming or people shouting because everyone's concentrating so hard to slow down and avoid the crash that there's no fear yet. But then the, the moment of fear before you start coming to concentrate is when you hear all that noise coming towards you because you know there's very little. And it's only at that point you realize how fast you're going. And you hit the brakes and nothing's really happening. And you see you're still going so fast and because you can't slam your brakes on because you're scared and you'll take the guys that you get hit from behind. So it's this really tight rope of trying to slow down as fast as you can without taking down guys behind you while avoiding what's coming towards you. But then all of a sudden it hits you. That wave that is inevitably going to come just came, comes smashing into you. And there's nothing you can do at that point. You just, I remember in that, the time it happened to me, we were just everywhere. I was part under people and getting up and just walking around, stepping over people and looking for your bike. And it's, uh, yeah. So uh, as you said, it's, it's fortunate. I didn't see that. And it was a very, very, as you said, we often will, will give abuse to the race direction, et cetera. But that was a very quick and, and good decision to do that instantly. Um, because yeah, yeah, it's a, that's a mess. And the, the way they brought, because consider how fast they were going at the front. You know, the, mm. this 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 brake was going so fast, yeah. and the camera cut. They had a camera towards the front, and um, all over the front of the race, all of a sudden, they were the the moto regulators, who often I think get overlooked by television viewers, don't they? The role yeah. that they play, um, they were swarming all over the front. There must have been three of them going, you know, giving the old flappy arms thing and stop, stop, yeah. stop. But that took. I mean, it took a while for the message to actually sink in with the riders that this, they, no, this is serious. Stop. Because they were like, they were in the heat of the moment. The adrenaline was going, this was their move of the day. And when they did come to a halt, there was a lot of gesticulating and kind oh, of like, hey, you know, totally <laughs> like that. But just to watch, that was quite funny in itself, just to see the kind of penny drop. <laughs> that they probably had teammates at the back yeah, being yeah. loaded into an ambulance, you know, maybe just <laughs> chill a bit. Yeah, it's, uh, um, calm it. But, um, <laughs> But they yeah. had to, yeah, so they had to stand around for 20 minutes. And that quite surprised me as well, that none of them sat down on the ground. Like, <laughs> what are you yeah. doing standing? You know? I know, that is strange, um, isn't it? It's pack behavior, isn't it? Plus, yeah. I guess if you're saying, uh, it was a howling tail, and there's also, if it's a howling tailwind like that, even if they're, because I, I did notice the, pe the peloton, even when it was, it's also quite p tightly packed, because if it's, the moment it goes, if wherever you're, whatever position you're in, you're basically going to stay in. It's going to just be like a flat out start. So no one would sit down in case suddenly some riders came around them. And so although everyone's yeah. trying to be quite, quite sort of like, um, uh, how to consider it uh, to the situation, all the racers' heads were still switched on. It's like, don't oh, move. That, I hadn't and, considered that. Yeah. Yeah. It, so even when the peloton's static. Yeah. It was still being peloton. They're, they're holding their position. <laughs> it yeah. was cocked and primed. And it's, keep and again, ben, that's a bit ben of a tricky one front. because you don't, and also you're there. And if you had been badly placed before, you think, oh, this is an opportunity. So you, just, 
It's like just kind of slowly scurrying up, like saying, "Oh, there's a teammate," and he's going to speak to them. <laughs> and it's like <laughs> brilliant. Oh, you would totally that's- do that. Be, so that's why we're standing there and kind of blocking slightly. And although being considerate to the situation, we'd just be watching each other with eagle eyes, just making sure don't don't you do it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. I hadn't even thought about that. That's absolutely brilliant. Standing well, still, racing. T- Two, two riders who did not budge from their position in the static peloton were um, were Max Wahlscheidt and Victor Kampenutz. <laughs> because as soon as as soon as the race went again, I was thinking, you know, are they going to do it again? Like the most telegraphed yeah. tactics in the world, you know, send everybody in the peloton an, an email and a WhatsApp saying, guys, when the race restarts, we're going to attack again, you know. Um, and uh, yeah, sure enough, as soon as the flag dropped, Boom! Exactly the same tactic, delivered with exactly the same unanswerable ferocity. That's amazing. Um, it was hugely, it was hugely impressive. Actually, yeah. they tore a group away, and not only that, but um, then the, the the another huge uh, man, Lukas uh, Wisniewski. Um, it's actually, I think it's pronounced Wukas Wisniewski, um, formerly of of Sky and all that. And I think he, so he got across as well. And all of a sudden they had three in this, um, in this move of 15 riders, I think it was yesterday. Jeez. And they got away and um, they got away and that was it. That was perfect. So Sagan had no rivals for the Malia Ciclamino. He was happy. I mean, he was super happy, Peter Sagan. He was exuding happiness towards was the front, he? giving it the whole patron thing and sort of dancing around doing all that with Daniel Oss at his side. <laughs> and then, um, and Ghana and Puccio and the rest of them, there was just boom. Okay. Literally day off and let's just let that go. And so it did. And um, it was a lovely circuit and it, it kind of snaked its way in and out of Slovenia. Um, they went over this climb three times and then dropped down into Gorizia, which, as I talked about yesterday, has the Slovenian border within it, you know, in the kind of new town and the old town. Um, and they made a real point, the race organization yesterday. In a sporting sense, they designed a, a I think you've used the word a sportsman's course or the yeah, sporting course. Sport, sporting course, yeah. Which doesn't have a doesn't have a brutal climb in it, but the climb that is just enough to kind of really ask the question and kind of yeah. you know um, just a beautifully balanced and then narrow roads and twisty turny, so nothing was particularly simple on this circuit. Um, come to what happened in the race in a second, but just on the on on the the way it had been designed on the map, it was uh, remarkably moving. I think to see that it crossed the border between Italy and Slovenia eight times in total. Um, it actually crossed it three times within the final, no, twice within the final five kilometers. It went from Italy to Slovenia and then back into Italy with 1.5 kilometers to go. You know, it was great. And every time it went into Slovenia, um, and went up this hill. So the the hill on the circuit was in Slovenia. Uh, there were crowds reminiscent of that, that famous day in the Tour de Yorkshire, uh, in, in the Tour de France in Yorkshire, you know, seriously. Huh. Maybe not quite as big, but it's, hmm. I think we've, we're so, we've been so starved of that sight of, you know, yeah. thick crowds on a climb that it was all of a sudden it was, oh yeah, that's, that's what, what it, it used is. to look like a bit. Um, huh. because clearly I think the COVID regulations in Slovenia are not as stringent as they are in Italy. So hmm. they weren't wearing masks. Um, they were obviously allowed to congregate en masse <laughs> and, and they did, <laughs> you know, because Slovenia has a lot to celebrate, doesn't it? All right. There's no, there's no pog and rog at this race, but they've got world beating races all of a sudden, haven't they? And they've got seven really good pros in at world tour level. Yeah. Um, and it was, it was great to see. It was just great to see. I was quite moved by it. Um, and Campanuts won the race in great style. 
Yeah, I saw. It. I, I did then watch the the highlights later and Campanas. That, that sort of day, if he's on like that, is just you. You have them so few in your career where you've got that confidence. Where, as you said, to have done that launch attack at the beginning with the teammates and then it all to fall apart and then have to do it again. But then when he went from that breakaway, the attack he did was equally devastating. It was just phenomenal. From the 15 riders, it was just he went from the back and came by them like they Repeat, were standing. Repeatedly. He, repeatedly. Yeah. He did, just cut. he did that move. He did that move three or four times right it's from the back just, of 15 riders. I know. It was crazy. It was like he was just winding up the speed like as big as he could so that nobody could get him. And a, oh. Everybody knew he was doing it as well. They'd look around and they'd go, yeah. oh, there's Victor just just dropping five bike lengths off the back and <clears throat> sticking it in his biggest ring. He's going to come past very soon. And the you yeah. know, first three times, so they managed to sort of ha- you know go with him. And the fourth time, they didn't. That's <laughs> and mental. What was so smart was, what was so smart was the group he prized clear in the end with Oscar Rizabek and Alan mm. Torres were, were riders he could beat. Yeah. With the climb still to come and a potential group sprint still to come, he had to be very careful about who went with him. Because yeah. and this was the problem, you know, Quebec Assos had done the first half of the race brilliantly by 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 getting three in the move. You know, that what a result that was. But then they would have looked around and gone, Okay, who's who's here? Twelve other guys. Oh, Mollum was there. Content Airlines yeah. is there, he can climb. Yeah. Oh, and actually if it comes down to a group there's Stefano Aldani, who's very fast. There's Simone Consoni, who's got a really good... Bu- and there's Nikias Arndt. And actually, yeah. none of us are prolific winners. We're just yeah. massive engines, you know. So mm. how do we engineer... How do we engineer a race-winning move out of that? And it's not obvious, is it? It's not easy. Um, but yeah, so so he did it. So it was great, yeah. Yeah, super I was, cool. I was very pleased for him. Um, so beyond the the police and the movie, you did your run yesterday. I sense you had also a bit of a emotional day yesterday, thinking about things and just kind of yeah, thinking I mean, about history and places. I had, a, I, had a f- I spoke to Matt Rendell later on the phone, who I didn't realise when he was a young man, he spent a lot of time in Friuli. Uh, it's where he kind of learned Italian in the first place, mm. and so he was he was feeling quite emotional about the Italian side of the border. He's kind of doing his work from Spain, just watching on. Um, and you know, Matt feels these things oh, he as feels well. Them intensely, yeah. Um, but I have a, I have a family member who at the moment is in the, in the Balkans who I haven't seen for a long time. And actually just, just when I ran out, um, when I uh, ran out for my morning run and found myself accidentally in the Balkans, um, <laughs> I didn't even know I crossed the border. And then I kind of panicked. I thought, oh, do I need my passport? What if I get stopped? You know. Um, that's actual, I was that's in, existential I was, imposter. Yeah, I was, oh, stop it. Stop. I was in, I was in Slovenia without my passport, wearing a pair of shorts and uh, running around feeling quite, I was feeling quite emotional because, um, yeah, it was as close as I've come to this person for a while. And uh, so that was, yeah. But it also... On the television coverage as well, it's deeply affecting because they showed uh, they showed the the very beautiful round ossuary which overlooks Gorizia, which houses um, the bones of a hundred thousand soldiers oh. of both the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the Italian forces from the Great War. Because the river Isonzo, which um, flows up uh, sort of vertically, sort of north north south, formed the de facto front line between the Austro-Hungarian 
Empire and the Italian forces in between 1915 and 1917, which, as you know, if you've read your Hemingway, etc., um, was it was a I mean a, a conflagration really massive blood loss, um, and it actually that the 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 fighting around Gorizia forced as the Austrians were pushed back eventually out of Gorizia and then tried to counter uh, that if the Italian offensive it forced the German army to actually join the Italian front line. So it kind of, uh, and, and to come to the aid of the Austrians and that just made it even worse because it really kind of, you know, ground to a halt the front line then. Uh, there was also earlier on in the stage, there was also an amazing helicopter shot, David, of, um, look it up on Google of the, uh, oh, where is it? Where is it? Where is it? A, a, a war memorial. Here it is, uh, which is of national importance, uh, Foliano Redipuglia, where I think you know Italy's equivalent of our in Britain uh, annual commemoration of the war, the forum to the war happens every year, and it is uh, I think the, one of the biggest, if not the biggest, war memorial in the world. Mm. It's a, a series of very shallow, very wide steps that lead up on a on a, on a wooded hillside actually on on to the cast plateau which we talked about oh, about 10 days ago when we talked about karstic limestone plateaus that's and true. i said that's where it gets its name from that's how a karstic plateau gets its name from the cast plateau um that's neither here nor there this is an amazing bit of architecture there are i think 200,000 unknown soldiers buried beneath this um marble memorial um but the memorial itself you could interpret it as slightly problematic because it was built in 1938 under the auspices of the Mussolini government. And it, it firmly belongs in, in terms of its architectural design in, in what you'd call fascist architecture. Mm. Um, now, when I was kind of just looking at that a little bit, I, uh, I read that um, uh, there was a marble bit of detailing at the front that has subsequently been removed which used to contain the fascist symbol. Uh, and mm. in Italy, of course, that, in, in Germany, in Nazi, the Nazi fascist government, obviously that was a swastika and uh, West Germany went to great lengths to remove all evidence of swastikas from its kind of uh, stone landscape after the, you know, it's bricks and mortar after the end of the Second World War. But uh, the same is not true of um, fa the fascist symbol in Italy and actually not just Italy. The fascist symbol... In Italian culture, David, and let's and the word fascism comes from Italian fascism. It's not a, it's not a German invention. It's an, it's the invention of the, the fascist party in Italy. The fascist symbol is an axe surrounded by a bundle of sticks, vertically sort of wrapped around it, hmm. and it comes from very ancient. It comes from it's an Etruscan symbol that was then assimilated into the Roman Empire, and it stands for um, the rule of law basically huh. the authority of um of of the law and and the seat of government and power so so it's a power, it's a symbol of power really gotcha and and uh, it comes from Ro the roman empire and benito mussolini kind of incorporated it but he's not alone in doing that uh, there are fascist symbols all over the world in all sorts of um that have that just endure to this day in um for example the where did I read it just now, Jared? Let me just do a bit of scrolling. The Norway, both the Norwegian 
and the Swedish police force have the fascist symbol in their crests. Um, the coat of arms of Cameroon has a fascist symbol. The coat of arms of Ecuador has a fascist symbol in it. Um, hmm. The Royal Castle of Larkin in Belgium has a fascist symbol. And on and on. The, 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 Philip, the constabulary of the Philippines. And most notably, um, the United States of America. So all around the Oval Office, the Senate, um, in dozens and dozens of iterations in American uh, uh, yeah, in the, the foundation symbols of the United States of America, you will see the symbol of fascism. Huh. That's mad. There you go. It's quite it's interesting, interesting though, isn't it? It's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, in it's Spain, it's, um, it's kind of, I was just looking as well there, the, the Spanish Falange, which was the, the Falange was the, the fascist party that was essentially <clears throat> commandeered by Franco. They had a, a yoke and arrows was the first symbol of, of phalangism. There you go. I didn't know that. Facts. There you go. There Facts, you go. There you go. Yeah. Um, oh, so you didn't see the finale yesterday of the race. No. But I'm loath to criticise Italian television because they do a good job, by and large. Mm. But yesterday was frustrating. What happened? It's quite, it's quite awkward, actually, because I'm literally working for the race organisation. So if... You know, if you're commentating for ITV, where essentially you're the client, aren't you? You know, ITV yeah. are paying the race. Mm. You can be a bit more complainy, mm -hmm. yeah. a bit more critical. Mm -hmm. But I have to kind of be slightly guarded about how critical I am. Oh, yeah, because yeah, the, di the director's actually on the same crew. Yeah, and they're, 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 they're kind of listening. Sometimes they listen in the truck as they're cutting the race to our commentary. Sometimes they're mm. listening to the Italian commentary, but they'll flick around a little bit and they'll listen. So with that in mind, we were kind of trying to guide them into making the right choices because they were making a succession of bad choices. In other words, with the bunch sitting up 13 minutes down the road, um, you literally don't need to see them again. No, that's a race that starts in 13 minutes after they cross the line. You, <laughs> you don't need to see them again. You yeah. don't need a single shot of them because it's self-evident nothing's going to happen, right? Okay, someone crashes, go back. Mm -hmm. But just don't show them because the race was so dynamic and yet they kept cutting back in the final, final 10 kilometers. That's ridiculous. To sort of long helicopter shots of the Malia Rosa or Peter Sagan putting on his jacket literally oh. for like 30 seconds. Meanwhile, because we've, we've got the feed of all the motos, we're just seeing all this race kind of exploding up up front, and it was it was deeply maddening. Oh, oh, no. But there you go. It's just me have being you, complaining. Have you confronted him about Con it? No. Okay. He's quite a, a powerful and tall man, <laughs> <laughs> physically imposing, okay. and uh, much more much more important than me. Okay. Yeah. Um. Oh wow! It's that today's stage. That's very hilly. That's like shark's tooth again. So, oh my God, yeah, that, that start climb is... So, you know what we were saying two days ago about the fact that yeah. um, Astana, they should use their their power a bit more interestingly. This is the sort of day you do it. They can just rip the race to pieces and, and cause havoc on that first climb. And at least put put Ineos a little bit on the back foot because it's still a long way to but, go after that. But, yeah, but it's, 212 you... it's 212 kilometers, David. Look at the altitude of the last three climbs. They look like two, see, over 2,000. That's going to be cool. That's big. That's really what climbs are they? Is this Dolomiti still? Well, it's the yeah, we're in the Dolomites, so it's the Chimacopi is the Paso Pordoi today, oh, the highest Chimacopi. point in the race. Yeah. That's the middle of the three peaks. Uh, the Paso Fedeya is two thousand fifty-seven. Then comes the Paso Pordoi, two thousand two hundred and thirty-nine. 
Uh, then the drop down, a couple of other little uncategorized climbs, and then the uh, Passel Jiao, 2,233, before a uh, descent. Oh, this is the this is the 6,000 meters climbing day. Yeah, yeah. It's Queen Stage. Oh, and this and the weather's bad. Terrible. Oh. I've sent you a picture, haven't I? We'll put it in our show notes. I've sent you a picture of the view outside of my window at six o'clock this morning. Um, oh. the, cl- the clouds have come down. The, re- the weather forecast when we checked it last night said 100% rain until eight o'clock in the evening. Oh. Now, if it's raining, if it's raining at a thousand meters where the finish line is, so they dropped down to the finish line today in Cortina. If it's raining at a thousand meters, what's it going to be doing at 2,200 meters? I think it's going to be snowing now. I think it's going to be snowing. Oh dear. This is, I, think, I tell you what, this is where you hope you've got a good clothes sponsor because there have, there have probably been teams out there trying to buy jackets and stuff from certain brands because, <laughs> oh my God, that's going to be, this is, this could be a really legendary day. Gabby yeah. star. I think it could be, it could be a kind of, yeah, it could be the, <clears throat> the day that people kind of sum up the, 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 this edition of the Giro with, you know, the image that, that persists. Um, the conventional wisdom says this is where Bernal wins the race. You know, altitude, <clears throat> altitude plays into his hands uh, normally. But again, with the weather conditions, if there, if there is bad, I have to say it's not actually raining now. Mm. It's just a bit gray, but, but the forecast is pretty terrible. Um, yeah, I, I just, I guess David, there will be that seed of doubt about, well, one, what can happen on wet descents? Yeah, it can happen exactly. to anyone, can't it, on any given time? And two, if the conditions are truly terrible. Well, at what point? I mean, this has been the problem in the past as well. It's they, they need to have the kind of a, an organised contingent and, and uh, communicated contingency plan. You know the things they've had in the past with the chaos of yellow flags and red flags and going to remove one climb and do this because you, you have to be realistic on a on mountains like this anything can happen very quickly weather wise they and the, everyone needs to know that and then the fact the race is often spread across so much road and it can quickly turn into chaos as we've so often seen in the past so everyone will need to know kind of what the plans are and what the the options are if there are if there is a plan B and C because if they're hitting heavy snow at the top of one of those climbs in the final, then you have to, you do have to consider the extreme weather protocol because it does get dangerous. Yeah. Well, last night they were pretty bullish about it. I mean, the word coming from the organization was no, we crack on. It's all good. We're all good to go. So maybe I've exaggerated the possibility, but um, it's, it's cold and it's pretty bleak up in the Dolomites today. So um, we'll we'll see. Going to be great spectator sport. Yeah, uh, provided we get pictures off. But yeah, oh, no, yeah. It'll be, it will be amazing. It's one to watch. I think, it, you know, unless Astana do what you've just suggested, uh, it could be quite a slow burner. Yeah, she know. is. When I see it's that hard, I don't think you'd be madness to, to actually uh, try and do anything on that first climb. I think, I think it's probably too yeah. hard. Isn't it, to, you would want to put a, you do want to have a couple of riders up there if you wanted to pull a Hail Mary later on. But as you say, when it's going to be that hard, it's going to be a bit of a, a as we death march, as we say. And um, because it's truly going to be attrition, can't see anything yeah. explosive happening on a day like this when it's this hard and that bad weather. Because not, don't forget, if you're that wet and you're soaked down, you're adding kilos onto yourself with just, and it does make for slower racing because everyone's yeah. so finely tuned to being super lightweight. Then all of a sudden, you're wearing all these sodden clothes. It's um, yeah, 
it's not Anne's <laughs> shoes and everything. It just it adds up. So yeah. yeah. Oh well. Yeah. Good times. Yeah. And um, yeah. So I, that's why I've got to rush really. Cause I've got to, yeah. I've got to have a COVID test and then I've, yeah. I've got to get down to Cortina and I've got to start commentating in about an hour and a half or something oh my like God. that. They start okay. ridiculously early this morning, no, a little bit longer than that, but uh, there we go. It's going to be a long day, David. What have you, yeah. what are you going to do today? What's your plan? Uh, your- I got calls today, Monday, some trading calls, speaking to a member of staff about stuff and yeah, I've got stuff going on then. We've got our launch, our new relaunch of chapter three in two weeks. So there's quite a lot going on, which is cool. exciting, but busy. But I'd definitely try and watch some of this at the end. All right. Okay. I'm on it. All right. Nice one. Speak to you tomorrow, David. Bye. Bye. Bye.